Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's a Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hey everyone. So this week, we've got some bonus content for you, which is really exciting, kind of a first for us. A month or so ago, we released an episode discussing nostalgia and its relationship to racism and capitalism. And a big part of our analysis came from a book called The Circle of the Snake by Grafton Tanner, which is something Mitch had read. Uh, You guys seem to really resonate with that episode. And we loved having those conversations with you. A lot of you reached out to me and said that you hadn't really thought about nostalgia being political before and especially in its relationship to racism and colonialism. And because of that, we decided we would follow up with some bonus content for you. So a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Grafton Tanner, who has a new book coming out this October called The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, which deep dives into the politics of nostalgia. Yes, and I've been a big fan of Grafton's work for a while, now reading his first book, Babbling Corpse, like a year and a half ago, then reading The Circle of the Snake. And now having read his forthcoming book, The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, it's really great and it's been uh, really exciting to have a talk to him. Yeah, so this interview is about the politics he introduces in his new book, but also their relationship to a localised Aussie perspective as well and the unique racism that we experience here. I think we kind of focus in this interview on racism and colonialism specifically, but also in the ways nostalgia can also be relevant to a left-wing perspective as well, not just right-wing politics. So without further ado, here is our interview with Grafton Tanner. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Cool. So Grafton, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. A little bit sleepy. It's pretty early in the morning, but we're all right. We're we're doing okay. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself before we get into it? Sure. Um, So I am a writer and um, for the past like close to a decade now, I've been researching um, a few intersecting areas. One is happens to be nostalgia, but also nostalgia as it might relate to technology and big tech and capitalism and more broadly, how emotions and capitalism tend to uh, constitute one another. Um, and I've been fascinated with nostalgia for a while. I've, I have a few books that sort of, I wrote two books that kind of orbit around nostalgia. And then this third one that's out in October is called The Hours of Lost Their Clock, The Politics of Nostalgia. And it is my attempt at a deep dive into nostalgia as it shows up today in various locations various events and ideologies of the 21st century. And I'm uh, glad to be here talking with you too. Yeah, awesome. Just before we get into nostalgia and this in a way may be related, we're just curious, how is COVID-19 happening in, in Georgia, I believe, right? Yeah, it kind of, it might seem random, but we're currently in the middle of a lockdown. <laughs> so we were just wondering what it's like over there because we're in our second wave at the yeah, moment. Because here in Australia, I feel like a year ago we were 
Herald as the as the model country, but now everything has sort of gone to shit. And yeah. there's reports in CNN and the New York Times about how poor the vaccine rollout here has been. So we're just curious. Shit's is, is, everything, the fan here. is everything okay over there? Is it getting better? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, in Georgia, in the United States, um, it's like there was no pandemic because we have some, uh, we have some leadership in this state that's a little questionable, if you know what I mean. But I've been uh, to some other states in the past few months, vaccinated and all of that. And yeah, it's, it's relatively like back to somewhat normal. I mean, you see people wearing masks, but everything's pretty much open. Um, Airlines are open. Um, It's definitely feeling a little, a little more normal. So I, I haven't, I haven't checked the news or the you said the vaccination rollout is terrible over there. Is that yeah, that's what's going on? I think at the moment only seven percent of the Australian population is vaccinated, and a majority of those people are like senior citizens. <laughs> we actually the vaccination isn't really accessible to people under forty years old. Our government just fucked the Pfizer vaccine shipments, so we just like ordered a really minuscule amount for some unknown reason, and it's obviously like I think we ordered enough to vaccinate four percent of the population, and then it's obviously something we have to import, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, so it takes a long time to come, and it's expensive. And then on top of that, we've got the locally made AstraZeneca vaccine, which our government refuses to recommend for people under forty years old. So. Oh. They're telling us, and then we have all these ads being like, get vaccinated or you're going to die. But also like we have no vaccinations for people our age that are like recommended by a health body. Like people can get the AstraZeneca vaccine, but like there's a lot of mixed messaging. It's just a really terrible campaign and rollout. And now for us in New South Wales, in Sydney, it's pretty much been the worst it's been since the first wave of the pandemic in like 2020. Oh my God. So you went back to normal. And when was that about? Probably like September, maybe yeah. ish last year. Cool. Like we, it was and earlier this year. Yeah, earlier this year was totally normal. Wow, this that was pre-vaccine. Yeah, like yeah, because we just had really strong stay-at-home orders, and like they just shut the borders, and they were like, "This will stop it," and it was just like, "No, you need a vaccine." Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. I mean, you know, the U.S. dropped the ball pretty hard in every way possible, but they, they did. I mean, of course they bought up all the vaccines or whatever, and now half the world probably doesn't have access to them. But, um, I forget what I looked at the numbers. It's like maybe around 50% of people have been vaccinated in the U S I think, um, that number is really low in the state of Georgia because Georgia is historically a red state. It flipped blue in the, in the 2020 presidential election, but still a lot of people who are skeptical um, of the vaccine here. And uh, yeah, but then I'm reading these reports about the variants in the U.S. starting to pick up. And I have some people who are, who are pretty worried about that. Um, and, and they're also vaccinated. But I do have this this concern, like, are we going to lock down again? You know, because the U.S. like locked down for like two or three weeks. And then they kind of were like, it's up to the states. And of course, at that point, it was like June 2020 and Georgia just opened right up. <laughs> like it was no big deal. Yeah. I mean, we're probably going to be in lockdown for the next month. But let's move on to our actual topic for today. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of COVID, something that was really fascinating about your book is its timeliness, how it's talking about things like COVID-19 and the George Floyd uh, protests. Uh, and I was just wondering with nostalgia, before we get into it, how would you personally def- define nostalgia? What's like the method that you use to an- analyze all these things? I think of nostalgia first as an emotion, which I know might 
sound like obvious, but it's important to foreground that because it there tends to be a good amount of skepticism with nostalgia, and rightfully so. We could talk about that in a bit. Um, but it is first and foremost an emotion, like anger or happiness or sadness or whatever. Um, like any emotion, it kind of depends on how we use it, you know, whether or not it's going to lead to some good stuff or some bad stuff. Um, so I, I see it as an emotion of um, yearning for a home in the past. Um, it doesn't have to be one that you experience directly. It could be one that you cobble together. It could be one that you make up or it could be one that you um, sort of receive secondhand, you know, like plenty of people are nostalgic for the 1980s and yet they didn't live through the 1980s. That's still nostalgia. Some people like to split that into, well, it's this type and that type. I don't think that does us any good. I think that's just a valid nostalgia as it is my nostalgia for like, you know, the 2000s or something when I actually lived. So I, that's, how I, that's how I view it. And then from there, it gets picked up and, and interpreted culturally and put in its context. And then we come out with good kinds of nostalgia that are pro-social and the bad kind that is not. I think with our episode on nostalgia, we talked a lot about the commodification of nostalgia and like its relationship to capitalism and brands and advertising. But something that I found really interesting about your book and probably what I liked the most about it was just like all the um, analysis of nostalgia in modern day race politics And I know that your book obviously is very localized to America, but there's a lot of parallels between black activism in America and First Nations activism here in Australia, because I don't know how much you know about local Australian politics, but we are also obviously colonized land. We are also built on white supremacy and the genocide of First Nations people. And there is an ongoing fight here in Australia to even recognize that. Like the race conversations here are so behind literally everybody else. It's so backwards and whitewashed here. It's still even a conversation to convince people that colonizing countries is like probably not a good thing. Like we're still there. We're still at the, you guys were kind of hurtful when you committed genocide. Like that's where we're at here. Um, It's just, yeah, painful. But Something that I found really interesting was the discussion on like monuments and tearing down monuments and how like nostalgia is kind of really integral to a lot of the colonial fantasy that still exists on colonized land like ours and like in America. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about the relationship between like racial activism and nostalgia. Absolutely. Yeah. Um so yes, and that chapter that you're referring to in the book is um, is about is particularly about like the lost cause nostalgia of the Confederate States. So it is U.S. centric. There's some mention there about um, some activism that has has been going on in the U.K. that went on in, in 2020 as well. You know, monument building is itself sort of a nostalgic enterprise. It just depends on what gets monumentalized. That's that's really where the problems begin. Because if, uh, you know, I grew up in the, in the Southern United States and it just was totally normal that most of the, these Southern, you know, small towns, but also the big cities too, but definitely these like towns all over the place in the Southeastern United States, um, in, in these town squares have really poorly looking, they look kind of bad. <laughs> they look poorly made because <laughs> they are, um, statues to, you know, some of them are like just the Confederate soldier, like broadly. And then some of them are uh, to actually like, you know, Jefferson Davis or any, you know, insert treasonous white slave owner from back in the day. And 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 they're all over the place. 
And you, we've noticed, of course, in the U.S. and in the U.K. that over the past 10 years, there have been cries to tear them down. And of course, this elicits um, angry conversations. And, and you have a large group of people who do not want them torn down because they make the mistake of seeing monuments as history. Okay, well, it's well known in most of the monument literature, scholars, people who study memorialization, that monuments don't tell history. That you don't go to a monument necessarily to learn about history like you might when you read a book or take a history class. Um, monuments instead preserve some kind of narrative of, of a memory, but definitely not history. So tearing them down doesn't mean that you suddenly forget everything. It's just like if you tore down a bunch of, you know, uh, Nazi civilization the world over, and no one's going to forget um, the genocide of six million plus people in the 1940s and late 1930s. But, but there's this mistake that's made, and, and I, I think it's because monuments themselves look really old and weathered, and they kind of look historical. They seem to like, you know, they prove like time wrong in the sense that they last and they get weathered and look older. Um, but all you have to do is do a little history on your own to uh, see that most of the monuments in the U.S., at least the ones to um, Confederate people, uh, were built you know, at the height of Jim Crow to kind of start circulating this lost cause nostalgia for the Confederate States that itself began right after the end of the Civil War. And uh, they, so they functioned more as like a rhetorical tool to try to coerce everybody, including black populations that were still being discriminated against, to feeling nostalgic for a certain kind of history. And in the eyes of the powerful elites of that time, it was the quote, right history. Yeah, it's really interesting because even now I think among more quote-unquote progressive political candidates, there's still an idea of like, yeah, what happened back then, you know, was pretty bad and we like, you know, we like oppressed an entire race of people, but this is still there to remind us that it happened, which is like not even something we see with Australian monuments. Like this is also a discussion over here because we have lots of colonizer monuments that don't acknowledge any negative history like something that you see or at least that we see from Australia in like um little dabbling in American politics is like even in conversations about monuments you know erected by slaveholders or about slaveholders there's no denying that they're slaveholders but it's just like oh but this is a significant part of American history regardless of its impacts over here people tend to just ignore what the monument is for. So we'll have one of like a colonizer who, you know, raped count countless First Nations women. And they'll be like, oh, that, no, 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 that's like not part of it. Like that didn't really, like, I know you guys think that happened, but these were like really important men in history and we wouldn't have our nation without them. Like that is the, it's so backwards here. But yeah, I find just the whole thing really interesting. I do wonder how like lasting our monuments are because ours are looking pretty good. I will say they don't look super aged, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're extra fortified because Australia is just really racist. Right. Because that's something you sort of elucidate in your book about just the, the poorly made nature of these statues, how they're just sort of pieced together uh, and often using the same parts among uh, both the slave owners and the slaves sometimes. Mm hmm. Yeah, there was uh, among especially like the uh, just like the Confederate soldier statues that you kind of see all over the place in the U.S. Um, many of those were made not out of any kind of marble or any bronze or made out of zinc. And there um, there are these videos. Uh, my, my good friend Matt Cahoon uh, 
kind of was the one who told me about this. These videos, you could look them up. Sometimes you see these, you know, soldier statues getting uh, brought down by people and they hit the ground. They just kind of crumble into pieces, you know, they, <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, that was easy. Like you expect it to be this hefty thing, but it's just not the case for a lot of them. And that's because they were built rather quickly, you know, in terms of passing of time after the Civil War in order to be these kind of nostalgic ready-mades. How fast can we put these things up around the United States to start enforcing a very specific kind of nostalgia and uh, and then have people who are still discriminated against legally sort of orient and work around them, work within their shadows? Mm. Um, and and um, that has been... That's how it's been for quite a long time. I think something else that was really interesting that Mitch and I were actually talking about last night from your book was like often how there can be two types of nostalgia at once. And I think a really great example of that here is Australia Day. So Australia Day is a celebration that happens every year on January 26th. Um, and it is the anniversary of colonization. So it's when Captain Cook came onto the shores of Sydney and discovered Australia. Um, and there's a lot of heated debate around Australia Day in Australia. And it's been getting pretty intense lately because up until quite recently, I feel like a lot of like the majority of the Australian public was like not really questioning Australia Day and just kind of celebrating it. Like, this is fun. This is the day to have barbecues and go to the beach. It's a nice summer day. People have parties. There's fireworks, probably some local markets, whatever. But there's recently been a huge push by First Nations communities and activists to call it Invasion Day. And it's been a really political fight to, like, stop getting people to celebrate a day that represents genocide and colonialism and pain for an entire group of people that are still here today, that are still here <laughs> talking about how bad it is while everybody else is having a party. Um, and it's been like there's been a lot of momentum and it's gotten really big, but there's also especially a lot of like shock jock kind of like white legacy media people are really resisting the push to call it Invasion Day. We're getting like it's really po- it's getting pretty popular now, especially around young people. Like there's a march every year, like 60,000 people attend in Sydney. It's pretty big. But wow. we were talking about like the dual kind of nostalgia that comes with that because for a lot of First Nations people, the day is filled with nostalgia for like a pre-colonial time. But for a lot of racist, chuck chucky kind of anti-Invasion Day people, it's for nostalgia of a time where First Nations people didn't talk about their pain and we could just celebrate white Australia. And even that valorization of Australia Day is operating at a sort of a dual level is both maybe nostalgia for a a prosperous colonial past, but then also nostalgia for a time in which you could freely celebrate Australia Day. No, exactly, exactly. That's one of the things with the monuments, right? Is that mm-hmm. uh, there's a this like double nostalgia where it's like the the nostalgia for the, the old plantation or whatever, and then the nostalgia for the time in which the monument itself was built. I mean, you know, some of these look old, but not like two hundred years old. They they look. You know, because some of them were built like during the height of the civil rights movement, for example, in the United States. So they're really not that old, but they're just old enough that you can kind of tell they're written in a kind of language. And maybe even, you know, in writing it, it's it's trying to harken back to a certain time period even before then. But absolutely. Yeah. And that's I mean, this is one of the things that I wanted to kind of one of the major themes of the book I wanted to underscore, which is that, you know, like any any emotion, nostalgia can be used in very bad ways and it can also be very reparative as well. Um, and, and palliative for a large group of people or even for yourself, you know, um, 
And I think there's a, there's been, there, there has rightly been skepticism with this emotion, just as there's skepticism of being too happy or skepticism of being too angry or what have you. Um, but you know, I mean, anger, for example, fuels a lot of what we do as activists and writers and critics and what have you. And we can't discount that, but then anger can also be used in really bad ways. And you could hurt a lot of people with this emotion. So I, I've, that is one of the tricky, like dastardly things about, uh, all emotions, but certainly nostalgia is that it, you know, one single event such as Australia day gets seen in different ways by different people. And, 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 but they're all feeling nostalgic for different things. You know, I want to jump on what you said about how nostalgia can be used in a lot of different ways. Cause something we were talking about was just like how I think a lot of leftism obviously has disdain for nostalgia, which is something you mention in your book. But I would argue that like a lot of people my age and in my circles are like quite sympathetic towards nostalgia. And I think a part of that is just being like a person of color on like colonized land. Like a lot of us are really nostalgic for a time that we haven't experienced of just like not being mired by like white racism. You know, for me, as somebody who was born and raised in Australia and often feels a disconnect to their like homeland or culture, there's definitely a nostalgia there for, I guess, yeah, like pre-colonial times, times where like my grandparents were in like Pakistan or India and like how they were living unmired by like constant whitewashing and like forgetting you know, their native language. And I think it's a really interesting conversation about how like perhaps nostalgia and like enjoying nostalgia and being pro-nostalgia is not as uncommon in the left as I think it can seem at times because a lot of First Nations and people of color really do feel that way about their cultures. Yes, and there's there's a, a, a good body of like research on, um, you know, the ways that nostalgia has been used to build community and foster relationships with people who, you know, have been like historically erased out of the official historical script or whatever. There's a book that just came out. Oh gosh, it is looking at my shelf. Afro Nostalgia, Badia Ahad Lagardi. And excellent book and and she does this like deep dive into nostalgia in black communities as it relates to like you know culinary arts and certain art movements etc it's it's really brilliant and it just came out just a few months ago and yeah i think that i think that the 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 disdain that i have for some people who do hate on nostalgia so much is that i think it could be i think it's a privileged thing to say you've never felt nostalgic I really do. I mean, I mean, like on an individual level, people go through things, you know, but certainly on a community wide level um, where you have large groups of people who, as you say, have just been um, marginalized for quite a long time and a collective yearning for um, a home in the past where that hasn't happened or before it happened or what have you um, is absolutely crucial to surviving the present. And I think also for, um, trying to like, you know, build equitable futures or what have you. Uh, but there is a current and I have to, I have to attribute Alistair Bonnet, who's another nostalgia scholar for, for some of this research. There's a current in um, certain leftist circles that says we don't need to think about the past because it's true. The past is kind of a nightmare as Frederick Jameson says, you know, and so um, we just got to move forward, you know, and the point is to try to make things better for, for, for people in the future, you know, 
Um, I just don't think you could do that without, I mean, certainly you can't do that without a historical awareness, but some historical awarenesses um, are built upon a, a yearning and, you know, and um, that's a real thing that people feel. Uh, so I, I totally agree with you. And there's, there's some good stuff out there that I found that a lot of these, like, there are a lot of academic scholars of nostalgia who are, who have like done excellent work over the decades that have talked about nostalgia in this way. Um, and it just doesn't ever bubble up to like the mainstream conversation, but maybe I'm just caught in the wrong Twitter bubbles online. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Speaking of Twitter bubbles, something I find really interesting about your work sort of generally is that this is your third book. And it seems with each book, you're getting somewhat sort of less specific and and broader. Like with the first book, Babbling Corpse, it's like very an analysis of a specific genre. The second one is about nostalgia, but, you know, still within the bounds of big tech. And now it's just the politics of nostalgia broadly. But that is sort of the opposite of the way that our filter bubbles, uh, algorithm driven cultures are, are sort of sort of flowing and that's something you discuss uh in your book in terms of how nostalgia is used in algorithms to have them further capture you so how, how is it that nostalgia becomes a sort of uh, in a way an alienating thing when you get caught in these digital systems you know uh first off you're totally correct i i, I wrote my first book is the most niche topic <laughs> you, could, you know what i'm saying they're also getting progressively bigger uh sure, so yes. i don't know if it's like you know I don't know. Where do you go from here? I I was curious about that. (laughs) Where do you go from here? You're totally correct. Yeah, I don't think it's good to, I mean, the way that tech capitalism kind of works is, um, I I should say the way that that marketing works as well. Um, if, If we can get you into sort of an emotional feedback loop based on certain emotions that we know from years of like marketing research, um, that you're going to part with your money you know, um, every time you feel this way, then as an advertising, you know, person, I'm going to try to get you to feel that way all the time. Just like if I want to like get you to go to war, I'm going to try to get you angry all the time, which is what George W. Bush did in the United States after 9-11. Um, his rhetoric and many of those speeches, uh, although this is some, sometimes contested, but I would argue that it's, um, has a lot of anger in it. There's some fear, fear usually associated with different tendencies, anger associated with going to war. Um, this is also research that's been done by scholars um, uh, from that time period as well. And so if I can get you to feel nostalgic a lot of the time, then you're more likely to part with your money. There's some research to indicate this because you you start to yearn for this thing, this object or time, and you want to get back to it. And suddenly you don't care about your money. You just want to get back to it. Um, and so in the tech world, being sort of like algorithmically nudged to feel certain things, including nostalgia, it's really good for business. It's also good for the attention economy because your attention is consistently directed to the screen where the nostalgic content is. And I'm telling you, it's not just like, you know, Coca-Cola that does this or what have you and tries to like get you to feel nostalgic for their branding or whatever. Um, Individual users of social media do it as well. You could scroll through Instagram and find numerous examples of these sort of, um, I call them like retrobate profiles that just post just tons of content of like old VHS tape covers and old movie posters and, and new pieces of art that just look old, you know, and, um, and they've got like millions and millions of followers among all of them. 
so, so, you know, big tech benefits a lot from people's nostalgia for certain things, but other things as well. It benefits from people's fear and anxiety. And, and there's, um, I'd love to read more work on, you know, the combinations of, of the intersections of emotions and capitalism. I will say Marcus Gilroy Ware has an excellent book about this. Um, and the name just escaped me, but anyway. Retrobate is such a good term. Yeah, very handy. I feel I feel like that very perfectly encapsulates that exact aesthetic. Very good. <laughs> Maybe we'll kind of end that on a question. I liked the kind of towards the end of your book, you talk a lot about how nostalgia can be used for radical purposes. Um, and I think that's really true. And I think it's something that you don't hear a lot, actually. Because um, like I was saying before, with a lot of people of color using nostalgia to kind of find a comforting past, I think you're right in that it's also necessary to build a different future. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about nostalgia and radicalism? Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's actually, there's a book, do I have it? Um, it's called, there's a book called Radical Nostalgia that talks about some um, commemorations of the Spanish Civil War that, you know, do the work of like, trying to come up with radical futures and and to counter the 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 more reactionary narratives of that event and um but i would i would recommend checking that out um yes i mean i think that a collective yearning for um Naomi Klein has written a bit about this like the social movements of the past not the conditions that led to the collective action but just like the what she calls like the ability to dream in public in order to uh, build a future that's equitable for everybody, as opposed to just the ones who write the history books. And the ones who write the history books understand that time works in a very specific way that, that in other words, they're able to do with time whatever they want. And so if they want to talk about time being linear and that we have to go into the future and you should forget the past, then they're going to talk about that. Um, at the same time, we know that time doesn't always work that way. And I touch on this a little bit at the end of the book um, and toward the beginning as well about how we may experience time as sort of overlapping onto itself or whatnot and as being anything but linear. Um, and, you know, the thing is, is that the um, powerful elites of the 21st century know this as well, because whenever they want to, like, bring back a an ideology that's heinous and that everyone thought had died a long time ago, they just have to fold time back in on itself and bring it right back. Um, and I think that it's important to try to counter this idea of time as linear while also understanding that even thinking of time in sort of a nonlinear way can be very dangerous as well. It just depends on how one uses it. But to be able to recognize when our nostalgia is being sort of nudged and, and induced and pushed in certain ways that are not good for us as a, as a public um, is really crucial, I think, in order to survive, in order to survive the next stage of like emotional capitalism. And otherwise, I just think that we're toast when the next, um, at least in the United States, the next reactionary leader, whether it's Donald Trump or one of his surrogates, comes along and and does the same old song and dance as they've been doing since Reagan, even before, which is trying to get you to be nostalgic for a, a, a time in the past. And to be able to recognize that and understand it is crucial to having a, a more equitable future. But then also knowing that, you know, just because one is nostalgic for the past doesn't mean that you are misremembering the past completely. Sometimes you could learn a lot from history. You're not just totally outright abusing it by yearning for it and being able to say, hey, you know what? There was a time actually when um, 
when the climate didn't look like this. Man, I wonder why, you know, or there wasn't, there was actually a time when the tax rate was this instead of that, or there was a time when these things weren't happening and, and yeah, other terrible things were happening, but specifically we're talking maybe about these things. I think that's important. And I think without, without that emotion, nostalgia, I, I, I just don't think that, that I think it's being underused ultimately. That was great. Awesome. Thank you very much. I, I think we'll wrap it up here. It was awesome having you on. Thank you. Very interesting. Some great insights. Really appreciate it. I thank you uh, so much for having me on. Cool. So I hope you guys enjoyed that little interview. You can find Grafton Tanner at Grafton Tanner on Instagram and Twitter. And his new book, The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, is coming out October 12th via Repeater Books. So check that out. I really enjoyed it. And I think you guys will too. Okay, cool. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.